So there I am standing with a sofa on my head, leaning up against a building, standing on a short stepladder, wondering how did I get in this position? Well, it all started earlier that day when a good friend of mine called me and said he needed to move his sofa into his apartment and he needed my help. And I said, okay, had nothing better to do on my Saturday afternoon than go help him with this and thought, 15 minutes, no worries. So I drive down to his apartment and uh, he's waiting there for me. Uh, the sofa is at the, the bottom landing. He lives on the second floor. So he's needed to just take it up the steps, no problem. Get it in through his door around the corner into the apartment. All right, let's make it happen. Pick it up, walk up the steps, no problem. Get to the door. Uh, if you've ever moved anything like a sofa, you know how this goes. Doesn't quite fit. What if we stand it up like a refrigerator and then kind of walk it around? No, that didn't work either. What if we take the legs off? Can't get the legs off. I don't know who designed this thing. The legs don't come off. So we try to get it in and we get it partway in the apartment. And you know how apartments are. You, you go in and then you take three steps and you make a left turn and you make a right turn. And it's just, and we realized it's, it's really tight, and if we force it, we're gonna break the sofa. We don't wanna break the sofa. So much for 15 minutes. So he pulled the sofa back out, and I say to him, you know, if we take it downstairs to the back of the building, we probably could get it up through your window, onto your patio, second floor of this apartment. I think I was half hoping you would say, no, 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 that's crazy. Let's not do that. He said, Okay. <laughs> okay. So we take it down the stairs. We go around, carry this heavy sofa to the back of the building. And his wife is up looking down at us from the patio. And uh, we, we got this sofa and it's heavy and there's just the two of us and we're kind of trying to maneuver it and we get it leaned up against the, against the wall of the building and get it up as high as we can get it. And it's still a good, you know, two or three feet short of the patio. And so there's a woman who evidently lives in the apartment below him looking out her back window at us. <laughs> like, we're like, ma'am, we're, we're just trying to get a sofa. We, 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 okay. So she comes out, she says, would you like to borrow my stepladder? I'm like, that would be great. Now in my mind, I'm thinking it's gonna be like a six foot stepladder. Well, that'd be a six foot stepladder. Thinking this would be excellent go up the stepladder, it might be a little dangerous. She pulls out this little kitchen stepladder, about two and a half feet tall. It's better than nothing. <laughs> so I climb up on the stepladder. My friend gives me this, he's holding one end from the ground, I'm holding it. And then we just kind of walk it up. So I'm holding the bottom of it and it's now leaning against the apartment complex right at the edge of his patio. And it's on my head. And I'm just standing there with it on my head he runs around to the other side of the building, goes in, goes upstairs to the apartment, comes out, and he's then at his patio. And I'm just trying to hold this thing, from, keep it from falling. I mean, I'm just balancing it. And I'm holding it. He's like, okay, I'm ready. And I'm like, okay. Now, I'm not, you can just probably look at me and tell, I'm not the, you know, biggest, strongest. Not sure why he called me. But I'm not, like, that's not, I'm not, that's not, I mean, I'm just not that. Okay, I don't, I'm, maybe I should work out more, do a little, I don't, and so, you know, 
I don't have great arm strength. So I'm just trying to balance the thing. Like I'm, I, I know I don't have it in me to just hoist this thing up. So I'm just kind of holding it. He's like, okay, I'm ready on three. I was like, okay. He says, one, two, and I swear to you, I pushed it just as strong as I could, but it wasn't very hard. And the thing just flew up into his apartment onto his patio. He, he did it. Like, I promise you, it wasn't me. Like, I'm admitting to you all. I was just trying to keep the thing balanced. Anyway, he pulls the thing up. I'm like, whoa! I run around, run up the steps, run into his apartment. He's already got the thing in the living room by the time I get up there. I was yelling. I was like, whoa, man! Oh my goodness! That's ridiculous! Now, if somebody was walking by that evening and saw me with a sofa on my head, once they got past the ridiculousness of the sight, they, and then they watched what happened, they may have said to themselves, that dude, me, that dude is strong. He just, just lifted and hoisted through that thing up to the patio, man. But the truth is, is that my friend did all the heavy lifting. He did all the heavy lifting. And you know, there's a principle here. It's really a spiritual principle. It's that when, when God calls us to something, and not just is it a spiritual principle, it's really the secret of ministry. I'll let you in on it. Here's a secret of ministry. When God calls us into something, he always does the heavy lifting. There's no ministry endeavor that you or I will engage in that God has called us to where he doesn't do the heavy lifting. All we're doing is just trying to keep the thing balanced on our head. We're just trying to keep it from, from falling. But God is the one that hoists it up onto the patio, into the apartment. I mean, look at Scripture. Look at the stories in Scripture. God calls Moses from a burning bush. And God says to Moses, I have heard the cries of my people, and I have come to deliver them. We talk, we talk about Moses as the great deliverer. I mean, that's fine, but he really wasn't. God himself called himself. God said, I, God, am the, the, the deliverer. Look at Joshua. Joshua in the Battle of Jericho. The people walk around the walls seven times, and the walls come tumbling down. Like, that wasn't Joshua. That wasn't the people. They were being obedient. They were just keeping the thing balanced on their heads. But it was God that knocked the walls down. Go through Scripture. Look at David and Goliath. It wasn't the slingshot and the rock that brought down the giant. It was the power of God in that rock that brought down the giant. And so, uh, parents of Jesse Gur, please report to the children's worship wing. Jesse Gurink, Gurink, as Peter says, I'm going to go with it. Yes. All right. So it was, it was the power of God that did it. God did the heavy lifting. For the last several weeks, we've talked about building bridges. We've talked about uh, trying to reach out to those that aren't like us. And Pastor Joel has preached some fantastic messages along these lines. But I want you to understand, at the end of the day, and really from the beginning of the day to the end of the day, it's God that's going to do the heavy lifting. As a matter of fact, God goes ahead of us 
in evangelism. God goes ahead of us in building bridges. This is not something we're doing in and of our own strength. And this is good news for us because we can get overwhelmed and intimidated by the challenge that Pastor Joel put before us. He challenged us to, to reach out and connect to people that aren't like us. He challenged us to get to know their story so well that it has a place in our hearts and that we can understand where they're coming from. We've been challenged to create safe places where these conversations can happen. We've been challenged to allow this relationship, this bridge to be inspected by others and utilized as a connection for them. And as I've said, this challenge can be overwhelming, impressive, but overwhelming. Perhaps you've seen the, the bridge out in the foyer has 7,000 clothespins, indicating the number of relationships, the number of connections, the number of conversations that are going to be happening, that are to happen. And that is overwhelming. And when we think about all that has to be done, we can stay encouraged to know that God has done and is doing the heavy lifting. Let's take a look at our passage for today. Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. When he, that is Jesus, when he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. This is a story about a centurion. A centurion is, was a Roman officer that was in, in charge of about 100 men. And in Capernaum, which is a city in Israel, the Roman soldiers were there to keep the peace, to keep the Roman peace, to make sure the interests of Rome were preserved. You have to understand that at this time, Israel was an occupied land, occupied by Roman forces, because they were part of the Roman Empire. So the centurions were there to make sure that Rome was happy. Now, as such, Roman soldiers and centurions in particular would not have been the most liked people by the Jews around them. And more than that, not only would they have not been liked, but they probably would not have had a lot of great relationships with them. So the story of this Roman centurion coming to Jesus 
is remarkable in and of itself. Let's look specifically at verses 5 and 6. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering, suffering terribly. More often than not, when we think about building bridges, we think about this idea that I've got to go out and make this thing happen. I want to say to you that sometimes you don't have to go anywhere. The centurion came to Jesus. The centurion came to Jesus. Wait a minute. Pause for a second and consider that. How in the world would a centurion, a Roman centurion, know enough about Jesus to even go to him? He's not Jewish. What would it be that would have happened that caused the centurion? Don't know exactly. But what we know is that he did go. And what we know is that he was aware that Jesus could help him. Let me say to you, the fact that the Roman centurion approached Jesus indicates for us that God was already working in his life. Mind you, this is before mass communication, before telephones, internet, radio, television. He not only heard about Jesus, but he heard enough about Jesus to know that that was the one he needed to go to. Perhaps he had tried all the doctors. Perhaps he had tried all the, all the medicine he could try for his servants. But somewhere along the lines, he learned about Jesus and he was drawn to him. Why do I mention this? I mention this because some of us on our clothespins wrote TBD, to be determined. We don't know who it is that God would have us reach out to. I want to say to you that sometimes the person that God would have you reach out to will reach out to you first. So be encouraged. If you wrote TBD, keep your eyes and your ears open, recognizing that God very well might be sending that person to you. It's not always us that initiates the conversation. But what we do see is that God was working. God was conspiring in the life of this Roman centurion. Long before he ever met Jesus, he was conspiring in his life and made him aware of who Jesus was. And as a result, the centurion was drawn to that conversation. One of the things that we, we would do well to understand is that Awareness about who God is, is a significant part of someone coming to, to know Christ. And the idea that God could do that heavy lifting for us is a big deal. There's a story about a missionary named uh, Adoniram Judson. And Judson lived in the 17 and 1800s. In 1812, he traveled to Burma, to now Myanmar. He traveled to Burma to evangelize those folks there. So, he trained and he prepared and he went to Burma. He arrived in 1812. Here's the deal. Long before he got there in 1812, the people of Burma had a legend 
They had a mythology. They had an oral tradition. And their oral tradition, long before 1812, was that God was displeased with them, that they had sinned, and there would come a man and men on horseback carrying a large book that would tell them how to get back to God. Years before 1812, they had that legend, and it passed down from generation to generation to those people. And so when, a, when Judson arrives in Burma, of course, he comes on a horse carrying a large book. And as they see him coming, they know why he's there. They know his purpose. Now check this out. He probably spent a lot of time in studies trying to figure out how am I going to begin to approach these people to even broach the subject of God, to broach the subject of their need for salvation. All that heavy lifting he was prepared to do, God had already done. When he arrived, they were expecting him. When he arrived, they looked forward to what he had to say. When he arrived, they were waiting for him to tell them how to get back to God. Because God was preparing them already. God was conspiring in their lives to make them aware of himself and their desperate need for him. And I'm persuaded that sometimes we feel like, man, I've got to convince this person that they need God. But sometimes you don't need to convince them of that at all. They know they need God. They know their life is messed up. They know their life is empty. They're looking for it. They're looking for a way to bring up their family right. The heavy lifting of persuading them of that, God does that. God's the one that snatches the sofa off of our head and puts it on the balcony. He does that heavy lifting. So when Judson gets there, he doesn't have to do any of that. He just begins to teach them. So God conspired in the life of this centurion to make him aware of Jesus, which is remarkable. But not just that, but God conspired in his life was working in his life to shape his theology long before he met Jesus. Now, some of us in the room are saying, theology? He had theology? I'm not sure I have theology. Let me say to you, we all have theology. Theology is simply how I understand God. How is it that I understand the nature of God? How is it that you understand the nature of God? That's your theology. And our theology is a result of what we've been taught and also to a large degree, a result of what we've been through. You know, often Pastor Joel says, why you've been through what you've been through. What you've been through is shaping your theology. theology. It's shaping your understanding of God. Sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. It's not always good. Sometimes our theology can be bad. If I grew up in a house with an absentee father, or an abusive father, and then people start talking about the fatherhood of God, or God our Heavenly Father, uh, I might not be too keen on that idea. I'm not sure I'm interested in having another father. I already had one, didn't go well. And so as a result, my theology is busted, it's broken, it's distorted. My understanding of God as Father is messed up. 
what I've been through shapes my theology. Also, we live in a West, this Western society, we live in America, and it's very scientific and rational, and we can tend to be very linear people. Like, things go A, B, C, D, E. One, two, three, four, five. Things go in order, things are planned, things are very orderly. And then we see things happen in our, in our world where it's clear that God's working, but it's not being done in our mind in a linear kind of fashion. Not working, A, B, C. Messes us up. We're like, that's not the way God would work. Why? Because that's not the way you'd work? Right. Because you're not God. And so, as a result, my understanding of how God works gets challenged because my theology is, is busted. But it can also work in a positive way, like in the case of the centurion. This centurion says in verse, verse 9, after he tells Jesus, no, you don't need to come to my house, he says, verse 9, for I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Let's pause right there for a moment. And so this centurion has an understanding of the authority of God. He understands what authority looks like and what authority can do. And because he has this understanding, his understanding of God is in fact, in some ways, richer than the Jews around him. Well, what is it that has happened in his life to cause him to understand that authority would allow you to say to a person, do this, and then you can just step back and know it'll be done? What has happened in his life that he can tell his servant to go here or go, here or go there and know that they will go? Well, he's a military man. He's a soldier. He's a man who has taken orders and a man who has given orders. And that has shaped his understanding of the way things work. And so what he is in, fa he is in fact saying to Jesus is, I don't know exactly how this whole healing thing works that you do, but what I know is that you say something and it gets done. That's authority. And I know what authority looks like. And I know that you don't need to come to my house to demonstrate that authority. You're standing here right now, I bet if you said it, he'll be healed. Because he understood that I don't have to go to make the thing happen. All the Jews of Jesus' time didn't get this. But this Roman centurion, before he knew Jesus, understood something about God that was deeper than the people of his time that had known God all their lives. By the way, can I say that we sometimes think too highly of ourselves than we ought? Sometimes we think that when we're going to build a bridge, we're building a bridge to someone who has nothing to offer. We think we're going to build a bridge to someone who has no theology that's worth anything. That all they will have is broken theology. They came from a broken home. They probably worship idols. They don't know how to read. They've just got all these kind of issues. But the truth of the matter is, is that we'll find when we reach out to other cultures and other communities and people not like us, there are things they'll understand about God that would blow our mind. You talk to someone from, from Togo, for example. Togo is one of the capitals of voodoo, spiritualism. Now that's a terrible thing. Voodoo, witchcraft, terrible. 
But one thing that believers in Togo understand is the spiritual. Like they get spiritual. Here in the West, we write spiritual off as, uh, I think it was probably a chemical imbalance in the brain. Uh, I think it was probably post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, I think they just really had a, no, there's really spiritual forces. And if you talk to someone from that kind of culture, you don't have to convince them of that. Like they get that. You'd have to convince us of that. Their understanding of the way the world works and the way that God works would be a blessing to us. But we're so persuaded that we've got all the knowledge on our side and they've got none on their side that we tend to be arrogant. Ouch, somebody. And the truth of the matter is, is that their theology is being shaped, it's being shaped by what they've been through. Not only does God conspire to make the centurion aware, and he conspires to shape his theology, but he also gives them something else. Verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled. I'm going to move on, but I just got to pause right here and say, Jesus marveled. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the Word of God, the one who spoke and all things came into being, the one who saw the earth spin for the first time, that one, the one who set the stars in that, that same Jesus, the same Jesus that saw the Red Sea part for Moses and the walls come tumbling down for Joshua, that same Jesus. The same Jesus that saw this, the rock come out of the sling and hit Goliath in the head and caused the giant to fall. That same Jesus marveled at the centurion. Do you get that? Do you get this idea that God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, was amazed? How do you cause Jesus to be amazed? Man, I wish my faith were strong enough to cause Jesus to be amazed. I wish I could say something out of my mouth that would cause Jesus to marvel and say, that boy's got it. Man, no, I, I haven't met anyone else like this, but that one's got it. He was amazed. And what did Jesus say and said to those who followed him? Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such a faith. Not only was the centurion's theology shaped and made strong by his experience, but he had faith. And scripture tells us, Paul tells us, that that faith did not generate inside of him. That that faith was not a product of himself. That that faith was in fact a gift from God. Romans chapter 12 verse 3 says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, I think we mentioned that already, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. In other words, God has given us a measure of faith. God has assigned to us a portion of faith. It's not generated by us. Ephesians chapter two, verse eight. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. 
The faith that you have is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. The faith the centurion had was not his own doing. It was the gift of God. God was working in that man's heart before he even met Jesus. He dropped a faith in his heart. And so by the time the encounter with Jesus happens, he's already been made aware. His theology is interesting and complex and deep, and he has faith. What heavy lifting is there left to do? Now check this out. The truth of the matter is, is that those things that he had, we, the ones building the bridge, could not have done for him. Sure, we could help make someone aware, but we can't give someone a theology that we don't have. Only God can do that. Only God can take a person's life experiences and shape them in such a way to build their theology. Only God can take a person and drop faith into them. Only God can do that. This is the work of God. And so when it comes to building a bridge, just like the centurion had faith, we walk by faith. We walk step by step. We walk by faith. Step one, we lay a foundation on both sides. We get to know the other person. We get to know where they're coming from. We know who we are. That's step one, walking by faith. Step two, we put out stringer logs. That is points of connection, things that we both need, things that we both can relate to. Then we build a safe platform for us to be able to communicate and talk honestly without judgment, without condemnation. And then last step, we make it ready for inspection so that other people can participate in this connection and travel on that bridge, travel by way of that relationship. And by the way, all that's doing is keeping the sofa balanced on our head. That's what we're doing. And then when the connection happens and the person crosses the bridge and people cross the bridge, that's God snatching it off of us and putting it on the balcony. That's what he's told us to do. It is God that does this work. It's not our own strength. It's not our own ability. It is that God is doing it and he invites us to participate with him. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.